So again, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 23. Follow along in the text with me this morning. Don't make promises that you can't keep. So words of wisdom that are spoken in many different venues. And if you've been around the, the block any amount of time, you've certainly probably been in the place where you've broken a promise that you've made, or you've had a promise that you were longing that it would be fulfilled, and it didn't happen. We've all been there. And whether it was the result of limited knowledge that you didn't know what the future held, or whether it was willful sinfulness in breaking the promise, we've all been let down or let others down. And that kind of reflects the certainty or uncertainty of life that we all face. And we face it in a myriad of ways. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what lunch holds, for that matter. And despite the riches and the technology and the luxury that we have in the modern world, we still face that same level of uncertainty. It's not unusual to face that in life. In fact, that's a part of what it means to be human in a fallen and broken world. Every age faces its challenges, and it either rises up to meet those challenges or it is consumed by them. What is unique in our day is the uncertainty and speed of the change that we are facing as a people, and really the absurdity of it all. If we were to keep our wits about us, the things that are happening outside of the church would be rather laughable because they don't make any sense, and it's rather clear that they don't make any sense. The emperor isn't wearing clothes, but everyone's saying and insisting that he is. And it can appear that the ground is constantly moving beneath our feet. This reality is going to be magnified for us, I think, throughout uh, 2020 because, let's be honest, this is an election year. And we're going to be told over and over and over again that this is the most important election ever. To an extent, it's true because the next election is always the most important election because it's the next one. But as Christians, we have to remember that elections aren't ultimate. And we also have to remember that the chaos and the tumult of our politics isn't the result of our politicians. It really reflects who we are as a people. In a democracy, our rulers reflect the people. They represent us. They are us. That's not enough to bring anxiety to you this morning. We have the day-to-day concerns, the, clo- the concerns closer to home. Will my marriage make it? Will my kids figure it out? Are we going to be able to make ends meet this month? I'm not really sure I can keep going with this Christian thing anymore. Or maybe you get that unexpected diagnosis And these are just a fraction of the ways in which anxiety and doubt and uncertainty creep into our minds and gain a foothold. No one needs to learn to worry. It comes rather naturally to us. And at its root, our worry is often found in us forgetting who God is and then trying to replace him with something lesser like ourselves. Because if the future is really determined by me, well then yeah, I've got a lot of reason to worry and to doubt. And David's life is a lot like 
that. It's the very thing that he is struggling with. At a very young age, David is given this great promise by God through the prophet Samuel, saying, you are going to be the king of God's people. Sounds pretty good. Who doesn't want to receive that kind of a promise from God? And it was given to David by God's grace alone. And he said, you look upon David, there's nothing great about him, but yet God picked him by grace and grace alone. And early on, after that promise, there's a lot of victory. David goes against Goliath. The one man who should have gone in front of the armies of Israel to face Goliath was Saul the king. We know a lot of things about Saul the king. A couple of the things we know about him is that he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Good person to face a giant. And he had the same type of armor that the giant had. There's one person who should have gone out and fought Goliath. It was Saul, the king. But instead, David, the future king, is the one who goes out there. Even later after that, the people's hearts turn to David. We read that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. It appears that David's on a fast track here to receive the promise that God has given him, that you will be the king. I mean, he even marries one of Saul's daughters. Surely God's promises will all come to fruition. But then, life happens, the bottom falls out, and Saul tries to kill David. And David spends much of the rest of his life before being king running around, hiding in the wilderness, not in palaces, not with his wife, not receiving the praise of people, but pretending to be crazy and hiding in caves. And that's where we encounter the the David of the Psalms, where his struggle with faith and believing in God is recorded for generations to learn, generations like us. So while there's a lot of differences between you, me, David, there's also a lot of overlap. He was a human, struggled with sin. He was estranged from God by his sin and from others. He had promises from God, great promises, and yet he wasn't sure if those promises were going to happen. And he had a lot of near misses. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Samuel 23. David's been chased by Saul for quite some time. He keeps getting saved by the skin of his teeth. And we're going to have another example of that here. And the first thing we see in this story is that Jonathan goes to his friend David to encourage him. And the way he encourages him is to tell him that the promises of the Lord still stand. Look again at verses 15 through 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So again, notice David's circumstances here. 
Saul the king, the one with all the power in the kingdom, is relentlessly pursuing him, trying to kill him. Now, the fear and stress on being a hunted man surely had to be great. The very man who is king, who David is supposed to be the king, is the one who's trying to kill him. So he's literally running from cave to cave. And the tension in the story is, will God's promises come? And really what we have here, I think, is some echoes of Israel's time in the wilderness. So if you remember, God saved Israel out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai. God made a covenant with his people, which they broke uh, rather quickly. But he renewed that covenant with them. They brought them to the edge of the promised land. And he said, okay, we're going to take this land. The 12 spies go in and say, we can't do it. There's no way we can take over this land. So God punishes them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So there they are, wandering around outside of God's promises for 40 years in a barren wilderness. Kind of like David. He's got this great promise that he will be king. And there he is stuck in this wilderness waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. And this is when Jonathan shows up. I don't think we give Jonathan enough credit because this is the guy who legally should be the next king. The crown and the throne should be Jonathan's. When Saul dies, his son should inherit the kingdom. If anything, Jonathan should be jealous, spiteful, and helping his dad. He should leverage his friendship to make sure David is killed so that he can get everything that he wants. But he knows God's promise. So what does he say to his friend David? I think this is key here. He doesn't tell David, hey, you've seen worse than this. Hey, David, you've killed 10,000s and Saul's only killed thousands. Like, you're way better than Saul. Like, well, you shouldn't worry about him. He is just a gnat that is bothering you. No, Jonathan doesn't point David inside, he reminds him of God's promise. It says he came to strengthen David's hand in God. And then he says, you will be king. He's reminding them, God has said you will be king. Therefore, my father will not touch you. Therefore, you will be king. Every one of us needs someone like Jonathan in our lives. Because there are times when you can't see through the fog. There are times when it appears that God isn't listening and that you won't receive the promises. And you need someone like Jonathan to say, remember him. Because unfortunately today, a good counselor is described or defined by just the person who tells you exactly what you want to hear, who just affirms you in whatever you're already doing. But the Bible reminds us again and again, especially in the book of Proverbs, that the wise man listens to correction and instruction. Who you listen to matters. Not only do you need a Jonathan in your life, you also need to be like Jonathan to other people. 
when they're forgetting God or they're doing what they shouldn't be doing, we both need to receive and give counsel that directs outside of the self to God. Because one of the most important things you and I have as believers is God's promises. And of course those promises are found in his word. I, I mean, you, you, look at, you look at just this one interaction. You have God's people coming alongside God's people, encouraging one another, and oh yeah, how are they doing that? With his word. David, remember what God said to you through the prophet Samuel. Remember how God has delivered you over and over and over again. This is not some God who is cold and distant. This is the God who acts in history. And with David, he was only promised a temporal, earthly kingdom, limited to a little chunk of land in the Middle East. But through the line of David, we are promised a greater kingdom that is to come. And of course, this comes to us through the son of David, Jesus Christ. That all those who have faith in Christ will inherit an everlasting kingdom totally free of sin and death and Satan. This is not some spiritual kingdom where you will just exist as a disembodied spirit forever, but that you will be resurrected in the Lord Jesus, dwelling in your body in perfect harmony with no aches, no pain, no aging, and a, a, a remade earth. It sounds crazy. Because we're told again and again, Christianity's losing, Christianity's out of date, and we're just like David, wandering around in the wilderness, wondering, are we going to actually get what God said we're going to get? We've promised forgiveness in Christ, but we struggle with the guilt of our own sin. We're promised eternal life, and our bodies break down and die. We're promised access to God, but often he feels cold and distant. You're promised victory over sin, and yet you keep stumbling into that same old sin. And we're wandering in the wilderness, running from cave to cave to cave. And like Jonathan, my job this morning is to remind you, Christ came to die in the place of sinners. That he took upon himself your sin and he absorbed the wrath of God. That there's none of it left for those who are in him by faith. You can't find that kind of hope by looking within. You can only find it by looking to the cross. That God in the flesh fought and won on your behalf. And that he is the sign and the seal of all the promises of God, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That it is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. Where do we look in the doubt and the wilderness? To the cross. Because in the work of Christ, all the promises of God are sealed for those who have faith. It doesn't say it's sealed by the strength of your faith. No, it is sealed by the work of someone besides yourself. 
The second thing we see in this passage is that after Jonathan leaves, the heat gets turned up a little bit more on David's life. We see that Saul receives somewhat of inside information about David's location. And so now David is facing the reality of betrayal and opposition. So you read in verses 19 through 24 that the Ziphites come to Saul and they side with him. And this is important for several reasons, one of which is the Ziphites are from the tribe of Judah, just like David is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is that royal tribe that is supposed to have the kingship. The Ziphites should be supporting David. That's why he's hiding in their land, because this is the tribe of Judah and he's a part of that tribe. But instead, they go to Saul, who's from the tribe of Benjamin, and they side with him. And he says, Saul says to them, study David's habits, find out for sure where he is, because he's cunning and he's clever. It's not really him who's figuring all this out for his escapes, but that, that's what Saul's dealing with. And you see the tension in the story here again. God has promised David to be king, but Saul and the Ziphites are opposing David, but more importantly, they're opposing God. Right? That's the real tension, is Saul and the Ziphites have set their face against what God is doing in the world. So primarily, the attack is not on David, but on God. And this is where the irony comes in, because Saul says he's on God's side. What does he say to the Ziphites? May you be blessed by the Lord, for you had compassion on me. Saul says, you're doing the Lord's work here, and he's going to bless you. Even though he knows that's not true. Even though God is the one who's continually delivering David, Saul has the arrogance to say, we're doing God's work. And I, it's unfortunate to have to say this, but that's common, both in Scripture and in world history. Very few people will ever come out and tell you, I'm doing Satan's work. Everybody says they're doing God's work. Everybody says they're on the right side of history. Everyone says what they're doing is good. Everyone has a justification for their sin. From Adolf Hitler down to the toddlers in the preschool wing. Everyone's got an excuse. We see this with the serious to the silly. I'll give you a couple examples here mentioned this before, but I read an article not that long ago about some abortion uh, doctors, and they claimed to be doing God's work. There's a lot we could say about that, but uh, certainly not God's work. Putting objects into the womb of a mother and crushing a baby's skull or ripping them limb from limb or burning them with acid inside of a mother is not God's work. It's deplorable inexcusable, and wretched from the pit of hell. And to invoke God's name is to invite God's wrath. On the more silly side, I was at an association meeting not that long ago, and we were making a decision. I mean, it was kind of important, but it really wasn't that important. And I was sitting right next to this guy, and me and him were on different sides of the issue here, and, and he just kept saying repeatedly, 
This is clearly God's will. We need to do this. And I looked at him and I said, how do you know that? He says, it just is. It's God's will. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he just kept getting louder and louder. So I stopped talking. (laughs) But he's like, this is God's will. I'm like, well, how do we know that this is God's will? How do we tell? We have to be very, very careful in invoking God's name. Prophet, the prophet Muhammad said he was doing God's will. Joseph Smith, when he founded uh, Mormonism, said he was doing God's will. Saul, before God converted him on the way to Damascus, said he was doing God's will. The Pharisees, when they turned Jesus over to be executed, said they were doing God's will. So again, how do we tell? Well, the answer, again, is found in God's word. He has not left us aimless. He has spoken in a way that we can understand so we can know what he desires from us. And this is something we we have to understand. God is not neutral. He's an impartial judge, but he is not neutral. He upholds that whole standard for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, and he judges all of us according to that standard. He does care. And we invite his wrath when we don't do what he says to do. And then when we say, we're doing this for God's sake. So as Christians, you and I need to be a people who submit to his word. That doesn't mean we just say, yeah, I agree with the Bible. Like It's easy for me to say up here, I agree with the Bible and never live it out. Such faith is no faith at all. You can say, I agree that God says sex is only for a husband and his wife. It's not enough to just say that and to go and have extramarital sex or to support homosexuality or to look at pornography. Faith always moves us to repentance and obedience. That's the point in the sermon where we all start going, well, (laughs) I'm guilty. What about me? What if I've already sinned and failed in any of these areas? And again, we come back to the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't only serve a holy God, but one who loves to forgive sinners. This is why Christ came. So that as we look within and we see our guilt, we are forced to look outside of ourselves and to go to Christ. Because if we will turn from our sin and say, this is wrong, this isn't what God wants, he is faithful and just and willing and excited to forgive you. But not if you say, my sin is God's will. That he will not forgive. He longs to forgive, but the onus is on us to turn and renounce our sin. So for David, here he is facing this challenge. He's been betrayed. Saul is trying to make sure David is never king. And what we see here is one of those hardest things to deal with. And that is when we are betrayed. I'm young. I've been in a lot of battles already, and most of them happened before I ever set foot in Riverview. I've made mistakes in those battles. I've sinned. I've let bitter take root in my heart. But in Christ, I've been forgiven. But I can tell you that the hardest thing in this world 
is not the attacks of the world, but it's those who should know better. It's the clergy who are following the world and compromising again and again. It's the pastors who abuse their churches, and it's the churches who abuse their pastors. I've seen it all. And this is exactly what the Ziphites are doing. They know better, but they don't care. It's easy to say God is on your side, but it is much more difficult to live in faith under his commands. And that is exactly what faith strives to do, to follow the example of Christ. Third, so what do we do? Okay, so here's David. Deck is stacked against him again. What does he do? And that's where, if you have your Bibles, flip to Psalm 54. You'll read in the heading of that psalm, that this was written when the, the Ziphites betrayed him. Okay, it's a very short psalm, just seven verses. What does David do in the face of all of this? He writes, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies." So what does David do in face of, here's God's promises, here's the obstacles? He goes to God, and he prays. And he reminds himself in this prayer, God will deliver me. He will defeat my enemies. I don't have to. And again, here we have to be, we have to be careful here. All right, David is not calling for his enemies to be destroyed so that he can settle a score, so that he can get even, or just because they disagree with him on something. This is not what motivates David to ask God to strike down his enemies, but because they are opposing God and what he is doing in the world. What is at stake here is God's character. If Saul wins, God's a liar. That's not allowed. Also what's at stake here is the salvation of God's people. If David never becomes king, Jesus never comes to this earth. Praying for the downfall of our enemies is an option according to the Bible, but it is never to be done lightly and it is never to be done for selfish reasons. But those who persecute God's people, those who imprison and murder Christians, those who promote evil as good and say they do it in God's name, it is good and right and biblical to pray to God to say, please stop them. And God defeats such people in one of two ways. I already mentioned one of those ways to you, and that's the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He was sent from Jerusalem down to Damascus to imprison Christians and to bring them back and to probably have them killed. And on the way to Damascus, Jesus encounters him blinds him and says, now you're working for me. One way God overthrows his enemies is by converting them. 
And when he does that, we should rejoice. And the other way he overthrows his enemies is by his judgment and his wrath. How God defeats his enemies is up to him, but it is good and right for us to pray that he do just that. Most of us will never be in the situation that David is in, that somebody is chasing you around trying to kill you because of the promises God has given you. We should be thankful for that. But like David, you and I doubt God, doubt our faith, worry about the future, lose heart in the face of our challenges, and there is where we learn from his example. Go to God. That is the daily fight of faith. The daily struggle to believe is returning to him over and over again in his word, with his people, and in prayer. Something else to take from this. I want you to notice how David's faith manifests itself in different situations. Sometimes we think faith is almost this uh, monk-like, just sit there and do nothing. Well, what is David's faith like? Well, here he sits there praying, waiting for God to save him because he's got no other option. But his faith in God, when it came to the Goliath, led him to take bold action. What was the faithful thing to do when facing Goliath? It was to saddle up and go face Goliath. Not to pray there and say, God, please strike him with lightning so that he'll die for his blasphemies. The key to both of these types of response, waiting and acting boldly, is that they're both focused in on that God will do it. God will provide the way. Faith fuels both. I know it's hard to know when to act, when to wait. It's something you just learn by trial and error. But faith should motivate both. Fourth and finally, the story comes to an end as the Lord saves David. God has proven faithful yet again. Verses 25 through 29. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So the situation came to a head here. Here comes Saul. David's running away from Saul, and it's almost like a cartoon as he's chasing him around a mountain. And uh, if you were reading the Hebrew text, which I don't know why you would, the connotation here is that Saul splits his forces. One's going around each side of the mountain. David's got no escape. The game is up, it's over. Saul is going to win. And while the text doesn't explicitly say it, the implication is clear. God has delivered David by his sovereign providence. 
at the last minute when it looked like everything was coming apart and God's promises wouldn't happen, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a messenger comes up and says, Saul, the Philistines have come into the land. And Saul has to go fight the Philistines instead of killing his political rival. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord always keeps his word. Our God is all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. And you can see that here in this text. All the little things he had to work out that just at the right time, Saul was going to receive that news that a foreign kingdom had come in at that time. Some messenger sees it, finds Saul over on this mountain just in time, and they have to tuck tail and run. And that's the hand of God at work in history. This is the God you and I believe in. He's not a lesser God. It's the same one who delivered David. Because he is powerful, because he is good, because he is loving, because he is faithful, you should trust him. The same God who saved David can and will save you through Christ. And again, that power is chiefly shown upon the cross. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it. The victory has been sealed by him. Not by you, but by him. And if there was ever a time in which it looked like God had lost, it was then. The enemies of Jesus put him on that cross. They mocked him on that cross. They celebrated that he was dead. His disciples left him. He was betrayed by one of them. Satan was rejoicing. And yet he cries out, It's finished. I've won. Even the earth got dark. It was almost as if all of creation was descending into a darkness that it would never come out of. But on the third day, he rose again. God is an expert of taking situations that seem hopeless and bringing salvation from them. The God who overthrew death in Christ is the God who loves to save and transform sinners like you and me. So like David, you and I have promises. We've got challenges and uncertainty. And the proper response is faith in Christ. And the God who condescends himself, who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who came down to save sinners. So when... That type of darkness comes, not if, but when. Remember David in the cave and remember Christ upon the cross. You will not get out of this life without some suffering and some doubt. But God saves. All he asks is that you believe in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your name is the name that is above all names. We come before you asking for this type of faith. A faith that is not blinded by circumstances or doubt, but that can see clearly that you are faithful and that you love to save your people. Ignite in our hearts and our minds a desire 
to go before you with prayer and faith like this. To look upon what you have done repeatedly in history, saving your people, and to walk in the confidence of that faith. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.